Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Although political figures ranging from former President Barack Obama to current New York Governor Mario Cuomo and current Secretary of Education Betty DeVos speak to the benefits of charter schools, the political battles for their expansion remains intense and heated. The debate surrounding charter schools is nationwide, but New York City is arguably the front line in that debate. This episode, we focus on the rise of one Harlem charter school system and the woman behind it. My guest for this episode is Eva Moskowitz, who is the founder and director of Success Academy Charter Schools in New York City. Through her advocacy and action in support of education reform, Moskowitz has established 46 charter schools throughout the boroughs of New York, serving over 1,500 students, all with the objective of boosting academic performance among the city's most disadvantaged children. Moskowitz, who also served as a city council member, is described by some as a controversial figure, partly because of an ongoing battle with teacher unions and public education officials. Moskowitz received her Ph.D in history from Johns Hopkins University. Her story is chronicled in a 2017 memoir titled The Education of Eva Moskowitz, which is under the imprint of HarperCollins Publishers. And for listeners of the podcast, you can find a link to that in the text accompanying the podcast. Eva, welcome to Teaching Matters. Thanks for having me. Uh, This is a really interesting discussion. We've had a few teachers from charter schools on the podcast uh, actually recently, uh, but it's not really a topic as a thematic issue that we've delved into very much. So I think I would like to start uh, by just having you talk about how you define what charter schools are, because I think, you know, it's one of those terms that many of our listeners would hear in drive-by political speeches or fleeting news reports, but maybe not really have a firm understanding of how charter schools differ from traditional public education system. So how would you sort of describe charter schools and how they do differ from public schools that maybe some of us grew up with? You're right. And it is sort of a funny name. Why are they called charter schools? And the reason they're called charter schools is that there is a charter, uh, which is really kind of a contract between a government and in our case, a not-for-profit organization uh, for how you're going to run the school, deliver results, govern the school, etc. But public charter schools are uh, free from the uh, uh, district bureaucracy on the one hand, and in uh, many cases, um, free from the labor contracts on the other, meaning you can have a unionized charter school if you choose to, but you start off free. Uh, from both of those uh, entities, but you are publicly created, publicly regulated, and publicly funded, although often, unfortunately, public charter schools are given less money than public district schools. Mm-hmm. And, and as you chronicle in your book, there's a lot of fights uh, that you have to go through uh, to find that funding in the first place. Also, getting the charter established in, in ways that everyone agrees with, and even even to where the school would be located, it seems like there's a lot of battles that you have to go through just to get off the ground. Is that right? That is true. Uh, unfortunately, uh, even though there's a crisis in uh, America around the quality of education, and certainly uh, in New York City, uh, starting up a charter school or um, running charter schools uh, is often a controversial matter. 
Uh, we have to really fight for equal funding to the district school. We have to fight to get facilities, even though there are many, many uh, underutilized buildings getting the district to share that resource that was uh, funded by the taxpayers mm -hmm. is often very challenging. And then we get certain freedoms, um, but opponents of charters often try and take them away from the charter sector. So it, it ends up, um, in addition to the difficulty of running great schools, which is a challenge in itself, uh, we often have to engage in a tremendous amount of advocacy just to continue. So casual uh, observers of the debate surrounding charter schools will immediately know that that it's contentious. But but you go well beyond a casual observer. I mean, you're in the front lines of this. Can you kind of dissect for listeners what some of the angles of disagreement are? And you obviously have an opinion on this, but I think it would be informative for people to understand what are some of the axes of arguments that take place in this debate and, and that therefore leads to this being a controversial issue. Yeah, and I think it's, as you suggest, uh, you know, I, I, I have a position on mm -hmm. this. Obviously, I'm a pro-charter, although just because one is pro-charter does not mean that every charter school is great. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe that um, being a charter gives you the opportunity to deliver for children and families, but it doesn't mean that you necessarily do. Um but I think the, the, you know, part of the reason that they're controversial is that, um, you know, there's a certain way of doing things. Before the creation of the charter school law, the first one was created in Minnesota in 1992. New York got its charter law in 1998. Um, before that, there was really only one type of public school. It was a district school. And then um, as more and more states uh, started um, creating charter school laws, you now have uh, more than 6 million children educated in public charter schools. In New York City, you know, we have surpassed the 10% mark. So 10% of the children in New York City are educated in public charter schools. And that can be seen as a real threat. Why can't we have only one type? And some people say, I want a one size fits all. And people like myself say, well, first of all, that is not good for parents. I have three children and I couldn't necessarily send them all to the same type of school because they're different. And my family needs different schools for different children. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, even if you could, um, you know, you might want that choice and you might find that uh, your particular district school that you are uh, zoned for or that is in your geographic locality is not performing the way you want it to or doesn't have the quality music education or sports education that you want and you want to send your kid to a school that reflects your value system um, that's the counter argument for why we need 
more than one big system. Mm-hmm. Now, there are lots of arguments uh, about how much choice uh, should exist in the education sector. I believe that it's very, very powerful and will ultimately make things more democratic because affluent people tend to have more choices than poor people. Mm-hmm. I was struck uh, in a quote from Governor Cuomo that he described it as a civil rights issue, uh, which I thought was a it's, a, it's yet another way to frame this debate in a really intriguing way. Yeah, I mean, in many localities, we have a very segregated system. So in New York City, um, you know, we spend $31 billion a year, every single year, to miseducate the vast majority of our children. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about children not learning how to read and count. It's also a deeply segregated system. So the In my view, about 90% of the schools in New York City are quite poor. Mm -hmm. The 10% that are, you know, better than poor, good, some, uh, mostly serve white affluent uh, neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And so you have a deeply segregated system and charter schools uh, level the playing field. parents, um, black and brown parents are really voting uh, with their feet. We had 17,000 parents apply to our random lottery schools, and we were only able to offer 3,000 seats. Hmm. So we had 14,000 children and 28,000 parents go home empty-handed, even though their parents love their kids just as much mm-hmm. as the parents whose kids won the lottery. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit in more detail about your your school system. Uh, I, when I was reviewing uh, some of the documentation about about Success Academy, you use the acronym ACTION to sort of describe your, your values, your philosophical approach, your pedagogy. Can you talk about what ACTION means uh, in terms of a guiding set of principles for your schools? Sure. I mean, first, I would just say that, um, you know, we really believe uh, in values that in order to have vibrant communities, communities need to have a set of values. uh, And ours uh, spell action because we think talk is cheap and you need to live by your values. Um, You know, there are sort of they're not. Uh, particularly revolutionary, you know, we believe in agency. A stands for agency. We believe that children need to, um, you know, be uh, self, they need to engage in Mm self-determination about their future. And they need to see themselves as agents of their own uh, life. And so we have a a great emphasis on that. The C stands for curiosity. We we want our children to be curious about um, all facets of life. We want them to find the world and ideas interesting. And so the point is that you have to organize your community, kids, parents, teachers, leaders, around a set of values mm-hmm. that are universal. 
Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And you, you, I mean, certainly listeners can go to um, the Success Academy website and, and see the rest of, of the, the values as they're articulated. But it just struck me when I saw them that they are very intentional, as you would hope every school would be. But clearly thought was put into not just the act of teaching, but really the lifelong values that a learner would carry with them once they leave your school buildings. Yes, that is um, very true. Um, of course, we want kids to master academic content, but at the end of the day, um, schools need to make sure that they are raising children with high moral character. I know that you probably have uh, entire uh, catalog cases full of evidence that you could pull out, but can you talk in broad terms about some of the successes that you've seen with your schools? Sure. Um, well, just to also give a little bit of context. So as you mentioned, we have 46 schools across four boroughs, and we are educating 15,000 children kindergarten through high school. Mm-hmm. Um, We have about 12,000 kids in elementary, a little shy of 3,000 in middle school. And our high schools, which are the most recent, uh, we have about 400 kids in high school. So all those elementary, 12,000 elementary school kids are going to be in middle school and soon high school. But in terms of uh, successes, you know, we're, we're very proud of our kids Um, capacity to read and uh, their love of reading. Obviously, there are metrics that reflect whether the children are great readers. We have certain tests here in New York State that are state-mandated tests that are pretty rigorous. They're common core aligned exams. Mm -hmm. And We are the seventh largest school district in the state of New York, and we are number one in terms of student achievement uh, in reading and math. Hmm. Very good. Uh, I want to turn to some of the points that uh, you raised in your memoir, and we've been (coughs) discussing your school system, but I want to kind of turn to some of the stories that you have in in your book. Your your memoir chronicles sort of your rise as an education reform advocate, and that did not start in directing a school. It seemed to me that it started in uh, your role as a public servant in in, in city council, uh, eventually running for borough president. Can you talk about how your early uh, experiences in politics um, sort of shaped your vision for education reform and how that's manifesting itself in the school system that you've created? Sure. Well, I was uh, the chairwoman of the education committee of the New York City Council, and the New York City Council is the legislative body of the city of New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, as I mentioned, um, New York City is the largest uh, school system in terms of size in the country and has you know, today is spending $31 billion every single year. And as chairwoman of the education committee, I held hearings and did oversight over the large bureaucracy called the New York City Department of Education, uh, which has, you know, 90,000 teachers in it, uh, 1,800 school buildings, 
uh, when I was chair, there were a million two children in the system. So I held about 125 hearings on every conceivable topic. I went over all the content areas. So I had hearings on literacy, math, science, um, social studies and history. Uh, but I also did operational topics. I looked at procurement. I looked at human capital processes and talent development uh, within the New York City school system. Uh, I looked at oversight. Uh, I looked at school safety. Um, and so, you know, after six years of doing that, uh, I was pretty knowledgeable uh, about the New York City school system, and it seemed really hard to fix it. Mm -hmm. uh, I kept trying, well, how do you get, I really believed in science education, and I never understood why we would treat science as a second-class subject. Why wouldn't we have science five days a week, starting in kindergarten, just the way we did for literacy and math? Uh, and that was very difficult to change. Uh, I looked at, you know, arts education and how um, so many schools didn't have an art teacher. And I couldn't imagine a, a, a school, elementary, middle or high school, without highly skilled and dedicated art teachers. I looked at sports. Uh, the sports in the New York City school system was sort of a joke. And it's so sad because kids often love coming to school um, for non-academic reasons. Uh, and I kept trying to fix the school system and it seemed really, really hard. One of my last hearings was on toilet paper. <laughs> I thought if I can't fix science and math and art and music, maybe I could ensure that there was <laughs> toilet paper in every bathroom in New York City. And it proved really difficult to change the system. So I, um, that's how I ended up starting success because I thought, well, maybe rather than trying to fix something that is fundamentally broken, maybe I could try and get it right from the get-go. Hmm. There, there's a lot of interesting little nuggets of stories like like the one that you just told. I also really appreciated the story about the maple syrup that was in the book. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of great stories like that, that when you read it and you've experienced bureaucracy, whether it's in a, in a school setting or at a university, you immediately see it and you can come up with so many examples of similar things that's happened to you personally, like when you read the book. So um, one of the things that I thought was really fascinating about the book is that the reader is able to follow you on the journey of creating a school from scratch. And on reflection, that struck me as being really interesting because, because of course, so many of us grew up with schools that our parents maybe went to. And so the story of a school starting from scratch is not one that is commonplace, but yet you get to read about that in your memoir. When you started Harlem Success Academy, one of the things that I noted is that you put careful attention um, into creating a culture inside that school. What are some of the lessons that you learned about creating a culture from scratch like that where, you know, everyone's coming in new, um, even even understanding how you're going to get the school cleaned is something that's a new decision that has to be made. So every decision is important and every decision doesn't have a playbook, but yet you're trying to create a culture at the outset of success. How did you go about doing that? Well, I think 
um, it, it's really hard, first of all. <laughs> um, uh, and it's not that I got it right um, from the beginning. It's more that uh, I learned quickly from my mistakes and I created a culture where we we didn't wait till next year to correct things that we got wrong. We, we had a, a culture of continuous improvement and we changed on a dime when something was not good for kids or teaching and learning. Um, but what I started with was a set of values. Um, I knew that school should be a joyous experience for kids. And I believe very strongly that the aesthetics of the building mattered. You know, we had, you know, we had old buildings, so we couldn't, we couldn't change the architecture, but we could make sure that the building was spotless in terms of cleanliness. And we could make it on very limited dollars uh, as positive an environment as, you know, possible given our limited uh, funds. And so I always put attention into the aesthetics of the building. I thought schools should be houses of learning where kids want to come, teachers want to teach, principals want to lead, parents want to experience their children, make it aesthetically pleasing. And then what happens in the building should be as close to magical mm -hmm. as it can be. Uh, whether kids are learning to count or uh, read poetry or writing, how do you make it feel really, really magical? Um, there were sort of some basic principles that I really very strongly believed in. So I think there's a tendency in education when kids are not succeeding to blame the children or to blame the homes they come from. And I wanted a culture where we, we didn't do that. If something wasn't working, it was our responsibility to change so that it would work. Uh, and there's no blaming of kids. That doesn't mean there, there are no consequences for kids doing the wrong thing, but we were gonna be a no blaming children's school. And it's really hard to do that um, because people get frustrated and it's sort of human nature. But if you're really clear at the get-go of what your values are and why we do the things we do, you can actually get uh, not only people rowing in the same direction, but when there's a lapse or a gap between the values and the action, you have a lot of people who notice because you've set that really, really strong ethical foundation. Yeah, it's. I, I was struck um, as you're talking about this now. There was one um, section in the book where you talked about sort of a a, a culture metric um, that you used with your students and your teachers to try to better understand, you know, down to the classroom level, um, how students in a class were doing with respect to the culture metric. Is that striking a bell with you, the way I'm describing it? I could be not describing yeah, we, it. We, we have school culture data, um, and that has to do with attendance and, uh, you know, whether students are and families are arriving um, promptly um, to school we you're late at a certain time and we we're pretty stringent about that mm -hmm. um, we expect kids uh, to all be in uniform 
Um, we're pretty particular. If you're wearing an outside hoodie, that's not the uniform. And so uh, we're, we're particular about that. We're also particular about whether uh, the homework and the reading has been done. And so, you know, we insist that parents sign and if they put their signature to the homework, then they need to have checked that it was done. And so we really build a, a culture of transparent expectations for what it's going to take uh, for us to succeed as a community. In addition to that transparency, I also noted that you've been a strong advocate of having there be um, very uh, ongoing communication between the teacher and the parents uh, in support of the students. Um, how, how have you managed to you know promote that in ways that the teachers and the parents are receptive to that because I, I think you probably know well that that's not that's not necessarily a culture that is common across every school and and so that's something that seems to be unique in some ways to your school system but it also seems like you've put a heavy emphasis on that yeah I think that there are schools that want to do what I call bypass surgery. They want to educate the kids without the involvement of the parents. And I don't actually think that's possible. I, I think that it has to be a shared responsibility. There are things that only parents can do, and there are things that educators must do. And we need to be really clear about our roles and our um, joint effort to raise incredibly, um, you know, uh, children with uh, strong academic skills and, and, and strong moral character and mm -hmm. strong social and emotional health, etc. So um, we're pretty explicit about needing parents for these minimally kind of five things. We can't educate kids if parents don't bring them to school every day that they're not sick. And there's, at least in New York City, there's a, a, a huge attendance problem where kids are missing 20% of the school year. Well, it's, we have a year's worth of learning to do. If you're missing 20% of that, that's, that's a big number. And if you're missing it, not because you're in the hospital, but you're just missing it, that that makes it really, really hard to reach our goals. And it's really frustrating for teachers, right? If you're in a, a theatrical performance and you're missing 20% of the practices, you're not going to be ready for showtime. So it, it impacts the whole school community when 20% of the kids are absent. Um, so we have, we, we believe that parents need to uh, jointly work with the school and the school needs to work with the parents, right? If you only have meetings during the day with parents, how are working parents supposed to be involved in their kids' education? We as a school make ourselves available early in the morning, late at night, on weekends, so that we can have that high level of parental investment. Um, we have to make sure that parents are welcomed into the school. Um, any parent of ours without a, an appointment can go into any classroom and sit in the classroom for 30 minutes mm -hmm. unannounced. 
they can come in and see what's going on. We don't want parents to feel shut out. We want to invite them in so they really understand what our model is, what is going on with their particular kid, and see the learning in the classroom. Before I turn to some uh, broader, more concluding questions, there's one other sort of specific question I wanted to ask you. One of the things that's really interesting about you, Eva, is that you have this holistic, you know, 10,000 foot perspective because of your experience um, looking at, you know, the entire New York City school system from uh, your, your time in public office to now running a school, starting a school, and now running a school system. So you have these different perspectives that you've had over the course of your career. On, on one place in the book, you there was this quote that I thought was really great. Um, Excellence is the accumulation of hundreds of minute decisions. It's the execution at the most granular level. You know, I think that's something that anybody that's leading an organization, whether it be a department, a school, a, a school system, etc., that's a great advice uh, in that statement. How do you, as, as somebody that's had all of those different perspectives, keep a balance between the necessity of paying attention to those granular decisions that do add up to success against the need to sort of be thinking on this strategic higher plane um, about where your organization is going in a strategic planning sense. I mean, it seems to me that that's a really hard balance for people to keep in their head at the same time. But yet, as I read through your book, you're clearly, you're, you're clearly doing that. Yeah, it is, it is challenging. Um, and, you know, you can't get so mired in the weeds and all the details that you can't think strategically. But strategy without knowing what is going on in the schools and how well they're doing and what needs to be improved also doesn't work. So, you know, even though I have 46 schools and 15,000 kids, I still spend probably, you know, 10 to 15 hours a week in the schools, really just seeing what is the quality of the teaching, what is the quality of the leading, um, you know, do the kids look happy? Um, are all the min- you know, minute details, are they being executed well or at what level are they being executed? Um, but you know, schooling is kind of an execution matter. It's 90% execution. And so you need to make sure that the lunchroom looks the way you want your lunchroom to look and um, that kids are getting their snacks on time and that um, kids who need glasses uh, get glasses. I mean, there are an awful lot of details that are foundational to learning. If a kid has an eyesight problem, then no matter how great the teaching is, the child's not going to be able to read the book. You know, in middle school and high school, you you have to be really vigilant about mental health issues. Um, you know, who's unhappy? Who's potentially doing self-destructive things? Is the school really paying attention to all those details of the kids and ensuring that they are getting the help and support that they need? Interspersed throughout your memoir um, are stories about your family as you grew up, and uh, it appeared to me that you, uh, your perspective on education had to have been influenced in large part uh, by your family uh, who, who, had, who were educators themselves. But there were also stories that 
describe the grit that your parents had to go through uh, to get to that stage. Um, how do you think that, I mean, you know, in sort of a big picture sense, how do you think that your family experience led to you being a reform advocate for education? I mean, how do you connect those dots? Well, you know, my, my mother was born in Vienna and um, fled uh, the Nazis and her her father really instilled in her the importance of um, education and uh, kind of a humanistic viewpoint. That atrocity, I think, was so... Uh, the, the genocide was, uh, you know, highlighted the inverse, which is the importance of humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the humanities, uh, and living by the values of respecting uh, humankind. Obviously, the Nazi period was a um, inverse of that in a in a massive and violent proportion. So, I grew up in a household that that valued humanity and the humanities. Um, you know, uh, it was hard to be um, the the elite education institutions in this country were not receptive to all immigrants. And so on my father's side, uh, you know, uh, he really, you know, had to kind of fight his way into higher education. Uh, So I think my mom and dad gave me a sense of, uh, you know, commitment to access and fairness and this uh, respect for humanity. Um, You know, I credit the good and the bad of the New York City school system for my, you know, my interest in education, public policy. I went to some pretty lousy schools uh, and I went to other ones that were good. And I, I just had a sense that Uh, If you are not on the path to access to really high quality education that has tremendous economic consequences uh, for one. And I I thought we should have a fair system where everyone had a shot at life. Uh, Last question, In, in one of your final chapters, you t- the chapter's titled Luck, uh, and you talk about being lucky, you know, over the course of your career as you've went through um, the different stages, but but I think probably more, more poignantly as you were developing your charter school system. I thought that was a very honest account, you know, in the way that you described that. Um, what are some examples of luck uh, that, that really strike you as being, you know, important in, in your rise as an advocate for education reform? And then I have a follow-up question to that, but why don't you go ahead and answer that one first? Well, um, I've, you know, I, I, I made that point because I think it's easy sometimes for people who have been successful to just credit themselves. <laughs> and I, I just think luck played, you know, certainly played a role. I sometimes found myself in the right place at the right time, and it didn't have to do with anything other than that. Um, You know, I feel incredibly lucky to have met my husband in high school and have 
you know, three uh, healthy and very funny children um, who uh, bring a tremendous amount of joy and laughter to my life. Um, Often it consists of making fun of their mother, uh, (laughs) but all done in... um, uh, A loving and supporting way, I'm sure. (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, You know, I think I was... You know, I, I was lucky uh, in my journey as an ed reformer, um, the opponents of reform, um, you know, could have crushed this work at many, many moments. And I often feel a little bit like Houdini. I'm kind of <laughs> at the bottom of the ocean in a lead tank with my hands tied behind my back and my feet tied together. And something happens that I'm able to kind of escape that fate. You know, the, the teachers union has sued us um, dozens of times and thank God we have won all those lawsuits, which allows us to provide, you know, 15,000 children with this world-class education. Um, I was lucky that you know, when we had 11,000 parents, we bust 11,000 parents to Albany in the dead of winter. And Andrew Cuomo decided to come out, Governor Cuomo decided to come out and, you know, be on the side of saving our schools. You know, that was incredibly uh, lucky. Um you know, we've just, we've been lucky. I feel really lucky to have found 46 principals who are so passionate and smart and dedicated to children. Uh, I just, I feel very lucky. I find, I feel lucky to be even doing this work. It's an absolute honor and privilege to serve kids and families, you know, and we're, we're a risk for families because we're still a startup and we're trying things and we fail at things. And then we pick ourselves back up uh, and get back on the saddle. Uh, So to have families that are willing to entrust their most precious bundle, uh, their children in our hands to try and provide this very robust um, education, I feel lucky to be in that position. So my follow-up question um, is, uh, you know, let's let's assume that you're talking with uh, some of your graduating high school seniors um, in a few years, and you're talking about this issue of luck and how that's been impactful for you personally, but also for really the school that they've, you know, presumably grown up in. How do you tell them to think about the role of luck as being a part of their future when that's something that they don't control? The fact that luck plays a role in all of our lives does not mean that you don't have to show up to work on time and work hard and find your passions and talents. It's not like you wait for luck to tap you on the shoulder. It's more that, you know, you have to understand how collective the human experience is and how each and every one of us has been touched by other people or tapped by other people for certain roles and responsibilities. And you just need to be open to those opportunities and take advantage of the luck that 
you know, you have been afforded. Of course, we also run into bad luck, right? Mm. And, and so you had a few it, of those stories too in the book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I yeah. lost um, elections. Uh, it's it's a very public kind of defeat. My first run for office, I lost. Uh, it can be very humiliating to lose an election. It's not a kind of defeat that uh, is private. Uh, everybody knows that you lost. Uh, I lost two elections. Uh, so, you know, you got to take the the good with the bad. Um, but, you know, I hope my students uh, understand that they were lucky to win the lottery. It had nothing to do with anything other than luck. Our schools admit kids by random lottery. There were more applicants than there were seats. So they were lucky. And with luck comes a responsibility. How are they going to make sure that there are more great schools so that more kids can go to great schools. Uh, I hope they're going to pay it forward and have a sense of social responsibility. Eva, I so appreciate your time and uh, wish you, your students, your faculty, your administrators the very best with uh, the work that you're doing. It's clear that you're passionate about the success of students and uh, I think that that common ground is something that should unite everyone. Well, thank you, Scott, so much for having me on. My guest today was Dr. Eva Moskowitz, a leading educational reform advocate who is known primarily for her launch of the Success Academy Charter Schools in New York City. Dr. Moskowitz's memoir, The Education of Eva Moskowitz, is available through a variety of online resellers, and a link to the HarperCollins webpage for the book is provided in the text accompanying this podcast. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters, produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org. We're also available through several popular podcasting apps, including Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. You can contact the staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Simply go to Facebook and search for Teaching Matters Podcast. Our audio engineer today is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth. Have a good day, and thanks for listening.